You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Washington is unique. The opportunity for students is amazing. I wanted to be around that level of excellence. I have a passion for service. Learn more and apply at wasm.education. That's W-A-U-S-M dot education. Hi everybody and welcome back to Who Did What Now, the history podcast that is not your history class. With me, your slightly unwell host, Katie Charlwood, spectacle addict and reader of books. And when I say spectacle addict, I mean that I am addicted to glasses and spectacles, although I do enjoy a good spectacle because history is full of them. (laughs) Welcome back if you are a regular listener and uh, welcome if you're new here. If you hear a cat crying in the background, no you don't. Ignore her. She is in heat and is being really annoying. So Binky hasn't made any meows or any kind of noise like for about two months. Like she's made zero sounds and now that she's in heat she's like meow meow. Like we thought the cat had gone mute. So... It is Women's History Month, and as such, I am working my way through all of the six Tudor queens. Queen consorts. Whatever. It's fine. You don't necessarily need to make that distinction here. If you want to hear the story from start to finish, you can start with Catherine of Aragon. So I've got Catherine of Aragon, Anne Boleyn, Jane Seymour. Those are already up at the minute. And we are about to go on to the next way. We are on Anne of Cleves. I am very excited about this one because Anne of Cleves is so often just referred to as, like, the ugly one. Oh, it's not even true. It bugs me so much, like... So, yeah, uh, and then after this, we have two more queens to... I told you I was going to get them all out before the end of the month. We're going to do it. We're going to get there. I am of the opinion that each queen deserves her own episode because I am sick and tired of it just being, like, Catherine of Aragon gets one episode, Anne Boleyn gets one episode... And then everybody else gets shoved into the same one. And like, no, I don't like that. So yeah, now, you know what? Before I get into this, we're gonna, we're gonna do a sidebar, sidebar, right? When you have a social media account of any kind, um, whether it's for TikTok, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, whatever exists, whatever you use. First of all, listen to the sage weirdo. She speaks the truth. So you don't owe anybody an explanation. You don't owe anybody anything. Like if you make a point or or you have an opinion that people disagree with, you know, um, 
And I'm of the opinion, I kind of go both ways, you see, in more ways than one, because... Like, half the time, I won't deal with the gober matches. Like, um, they're unworthy of my time. And, you know, I just don't deal with them. Like, and they don't directly impact or affect me. So they're irrelevant. And I just don't bother. But sometimes, like, say, for example, when I made a post regarding victim blaming and misogynistic rhetoric, you know, and somebody was like, oh, you stitched this video for clout. And it's like, well, no, I didn't. Because, like, the video only had 9,000 views. And and it's like, if I wanted clout, there were easier ways for me to do it. If I really wanted clout, I would drag, I mean, I'm going to, but if clout was what I was after, all I'd have to do is a video on like the Magdalene laundries or talk about how vicious John Paul II was. Like, it's not a difficult thing for me to do. But the thing is, I don't want to do that. Here's the thing, I love history. And if you don't pay attention to history, you are doomed to repeat it. And all throughout history, we have people saying that like evil wins when good people stand back and do nothing. So I am going to call out people on their homophobic, racist, misogynist bullshit. Absolutely. Like, I have a place of privilege because I look like a big bucket of mayonnaise and I am relatively eloquent when I choose to be. I have a third level education and also I'm cute, bitches. <laughs> I am actively trying to be good to myself and and not put myself down. That's kind of the aim of the game here. So, what was my point? So yeah, sometimes I'll respond. And as I was, you know, having this back and forth with this fella, I was like, no, you know what? You're not listening to me. You're not taking on board what I'm telling you. And you're deliberately attacking me to avoid the conversation that's happening, you're trying to detract and distract from the bigger picture, which is misogyny and victim blaming. And so I was like, well, you know what? Block. You owe nobody anything on your social media. You don't necessarily owe somebody an explanation. No is a full sentence, you know? And people do not have a right to your time or your attention. You don't have to do that, especially when they're being dicks. And when you have social media, sometimes it's better to just report, delete, and block. Bye-bye, motherfucker. You're irrelevant. Like, say, for example, after the Mother Teresa video, which got, like, three million views, I started getting, like, death threats to my Instagram, and people were writing out these paragraphs and essays. And you can generally tell by the first sentence how it's going to go and how they're they're speaking. So... And whenever I see stuff like this, this kind of hate mail come into my inbox, I read the first couple words of the sentence and I'm like, okay, this is hate mail, and I delete it. So that entire essay that they spent all this time writing, that they put so much effort into writing that probably took them somewhere between 20 minutes and an hour to do, the thing that they worked so hard on, determined to make their opinion and shove their opinion at me and threaten me or whatever they wanted to do, and I just deleted it it's gone into the ether never to be seen again that's how little their opinion means to me like bye-bye but anyway i know what you're thinking quit that jibber jabber and fact me well let's get our source on shall we we have anne of cleves henry viii's discarded bride by elizabeth norton the marrying of anne of cleves royal protocol in early modern england by Rita m warnick the Six Wives of Henry VIII by Alison Weir. 
The treasury of royal scandals, the shocking true stories of history's wickedest, weirdest and most wanted kings, queens, tsars, popes and emperors. By Michael Farquhar. Farquhar? And... Oh, and Anna, Duchess of Cleves, the king's beloved sister. By Heather Darcy. And of course, we had a little peruse on smithsonian.com, britannica.com and biography.com. So, let's talk about... Anne, the Duchess of Cleves. So Anne of Cleves was born Anna von Kiev. Okay, now remember, it is the past. And just like most women of the past, we do not have an accurate birth date. So, Anne of Cleves was born sometime between the 28th of June and the 22nd of September in 1515. In Dusseldorf, the Duchy of Berg in the Holy Roman Empire. Modern Germany, really. She was the second daughter of John III of the House of Lamarck, Duke of Ulick, Clevesberg, Count of Mark, and Ravensberg, and his wife, Maria, Duchess of Ulickberg. John III, her father, he was influenced by Erasmus and he had, and he was like middle of the road when it came to Reformation. So he was on the side of the Schmalkaldic League. I'm so sorry, Schmalkaldic? Schmalkaldic? The Schmalkaldic League, which were like a, um, a military alliance of Lutheran princes within the Holy Roman Empire um, in like the mid 16th century. And they were in opposition to Emperor Charles V of the Holy Roman Empire. When John died, Anne's brother William became the Duke of Ulick Clevesberg, known as William the Rich. In 1526 and 15, Anne has two siblings, an elder sister Sybil and a brother William. In 1526, Sybil, her older sister, she marries John Frederick, Elector of Saxony, head of the Protestant Confederation of Germany, and who some would consider to be the champion of the Reformation. In 1527, when Anne was 11 years old, she was betrothed to Francis, who was 9 years old, and the heir of Antoine, Duke of Lorraine. This was a very brief engagement. It was basically considered an unofficial betrothal and was like officially cancelled in 1535. So the Duchess Maria, her mother, was a strict Catholic and her brother was Lutheran. And how do I put this? And her father, he was having this dispute over Gelderland with Charles V, which made the family of Cleves really suitable allies for King Henry VIII you know, after the whole truce of Nice. And then the Italian War of 1536 to 1538 between King Francis I of France, you know, the horn dog, and Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor, and King of Spain. So they were trying to get control over these territories in northern Italy, so like the Duchy of Milan and things like that. France invading northern Italy and then Spain invading France which resulted in the Truce of Nice. And this basically ended all the hostilities. The Truce of Nice made Anne of Cleves' family a really suitable ally for Henry VIII against... Because her father, John III of House Lamarck, had this dispute over Gelderland with Charles V, yada, yada, yada. So while the Italian War is going on, it's like 1537, and and it's decided that Henry really needs to move on with his life and get a new wife. Uh, He's got his heir, and now he needs a spare. 
effectively. So John Hutton, he was the ambassador to Mary of Hungary and he had been sent to the Low Countries uh, to see about possible alliances for Henry with the Habsburgs or their allies. And there wasn't really that many options. Ferdinand, king of the Romans, his daughters were too young. Same with um, Emperor Charles. And Mary of Hungary, she had no kids. Isabel of Austria was already married. And then Christina of Denmark, who was only 16, she had already been married and widowed. And John Hutton had mentioned basically in passing that the Duke of Cleves, John III, he had a daughter. But, uh, quote, there is no great praise of her personage or beauty. So Anne wasn't really considered at the time. And then, so at this point, they were looking more like for... Christina of Denmark or Marie of Guise. But yeah, those fell through. In January 1539, the uh, the Treaty of Nice comes into play. And with this Treaty of Nice, Henry needed allies. And to top it all off, Pope Paul III reissues the bull of excommunication against Henry. And March 1539, Henry finally agrees that negotiations could begin regarding Anne of Cleves. And Cromwell is like, yes, please, and thank you. It was actually pretty difficult for any of Henry's envoys to get, like, a very good view of what Anne looked like or what she acted like. The etiquette at the court was pretty strict and Anne and her sister Amelia wore these um how do I put it so like the headgear they were wearing apparently made it very difficult to actually see her face but Henry was like mm, okay uh send me send me send me a painter and Hans Holbein the Younger he pops off to Duren and paints portraits of Anne and Amelia and because Henry was actually considering both of them and Henry stated that he wanted the portrait to be as accurate as possible and not to flatter them. So while they're in Cleves, Holbein's getting the portrait done and some of the envoys are there and Dr. Watton, who's leading it, he basically says that the painter got a really good likeness of Anne. Anne's mother was like really, really strict. It was noted and commented on by the envoys. And they also mentioned that you know, the girls had received quite limited education, which was more to making her like a very economical, a thrifty wife for a nobleman. They never thought she was going to be, you know, a queen. So she wasn't prepared for that. And as we've seen with Henry, he had very particular tastes. He liked intelligent women. He just, but just didn't like them to be smarter than him, which was a shame. It shouldn't be that hard in fairness. Um, but like nobody thought, hey, maybe he likes this kind of thing. Maybe this isn't going to work. And yeah, like one thing that's sort of very much in English society at the time was women would learn to play instruments. You know, music was a big thing. They learned dancing, things like that. And Anne didn't play a lick of music. Just wasn't a thing. She could read and write in German, but she couldn't speak any other languages. But it was generally seen that like she was smart enough to be able to learn other languages. They didn't think it was going to be an issue. It's really funny because Anne is seen as quite somber because Germany is seen as like a big drinking place like alcohol wise and neither Anne nor her brother were heavy drinkers 
No, she was pleasant and polite and graceful. And she had even learned, um, she heard the king liked cards. So she learned card games, you know, for him. She thought, well, that's something. So all the accounts leading up to her heading to England before she gets there, when she's on the ship travelling, they all generally say that she has grace and dignity and that she's very excited to learn about her new home, the way everyone eats. She's very much trying to be the best she can be for her new journey, her new life. Yeah, so Thomas Cromwell oversees the whole marriage treaty and the negotiations and this gets signed on the 4th of October of 1539. On New Year's Eve, it's so stormy and shit, Anne arrives at Rochester Castle in Kent. And on New Year's Day, Henry, Henry does this thing. Okay, this is what happens and this is like the funniest. So New Year's Day, Henry, mad into this whole chivalry thing, he decides he's going to meet her in disguise with a bunch of his men and stuff, right? The chivalric tradition of meeting your betrothed in disguise is this whole thing about demonstrating true love. Because the bride-to-be is supposed to see through the disguise and recognise her beloved, blah, 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 blah. It would be a very common story in England, tradition and things like that. But in Germany, no, this wasn't a thing. So she would be very unaware of this tradition in this sort of cultural act. So Anne's in her chamber, she's looking out into the courtyard, there's bull baiting going on, it's a big fancy fun time for everybody. So Henry, so Henry comes in and he's dressed like um, a lowly person. Effectively, he's dressed like what he thinks uh, a general person looks like. <laughs> and, you know, he brings her a token from the king, it's a gift, she's looking out the window and he grabs her. Like, they say embrace. He embraces her. But when someone touches you and you don't want them to touch you, they grab you. And he kisses her. And she's like, what? No. Uh Uh-uh. And she is completely disinterested. Like, if this was a lady from, you know, the English court, one, she probably would have recognised Henry anyway. And at this point, he was no longer the beautiful man of his youth, you know? But, like, ladies of the English court, they would be aware of this scenario. But Anne is from Dusseldorf. Like, this isn't a thing. This uh, chivalric notion that Henry is obsessed with, and even more so now that he's aging and he's got that ulcer in his leg and he's getting a bit dodgy. She is just so not into it. Like, she's like, no thank you. And she pushes him away freezes up and then just sort of keeps looking out the window like I'm gonna look over here weird person who keeps touching me she is completely disinterested in Henry and Henry cannot fucking stand it if you hear a cat no you don't I'm being dramatic Binky no don't even like whether it was embarrassment or shyness or the fact that she or the fact that you know it's a strange man grabbing you and kissing you Hey y'all, spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic, a chart-topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends, folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. We've covered all sorts of stuff from the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the disappearance of the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley, 
Not to mention our deep dives into the local lore of some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, and St. Augustine. So, if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. When you're on your way to meet your future husband, but Henry sees this as a rejection. So Henry storms off. As we've discussed before, and uh, especially especially the um, the and the Anne Boleyn episode, Henry was a narcissistic, megalomaniac, misogynist, just everything. Everything has to be his way. He is so obsessed with being right, with to being the manly man, the wanted man. And with all the injuries and everything else that's wrong with him, and he's gaining weight, and it's opening his concept of the strong, handsome, young, virile man he was, that's all gone. And he is fighting to feel the same way when he as he was when he was a headstrong young lad. So he storms out going, I like her not, I like her not. Like, so he just starts talking about how ugly she is. And who's gonna fucking argue with the king? Like, even if we remember back when Catherine of Aragon, um, their wedding was initially arranged and he was like 14 years old going, no, don't wanna. And Henry always liked to choose his own bride. Like, he wanted to pick her, he wanted to court her directly. And the political motivation for marrying Anne, that would have already put him in a weird place. Like, he didn't like that. He wanted it to be his way. He wanted it to be his choice. Like, he resented any form of agency being removed from him. And so he would look for reasons not to marry her. Like, initially, anyway. And then when the rejection happens, when she pushes him away and what could have been, like, if she had been, oh my, it is my true love, then that might have been a better base from which to start. But considering Henry's impotence, him's to say Henry is storming out he's like I like her not I like her not so Henry starts talking about her appearance and he says that you know he had been she'd been flattered by the painting here's the thing by all account by all accounts the only way I can put this is in the middle ages a pear shape was the the perfect shape and Jane and Catherine had all been rather slim-built. You know, they all had small chests and they were smaller and Anne was taller than average and we knew this. So she just didn't look like a typical Englishwoman. She was curvy, which a point I'll get to in a minute. Henry seems to be the only one that has this um, opinion. I don't want to fat shame Henry VIII, but Anne had more reason to complain than he did. That's all I'm saying. Henry is mad. He's trying to get Cromwell to, like, cancel the wedding. But Thomas Cromwell's like, this would be a major fuck-up if you did. 
It would be a massive diplomatic incident. England, frankly, could not afford to lose the Allies. So Cromwell receives blame for the Holbein portrait. But Henry and Anne, they don't meet officially until the 3rd of January on Blackheath outside the gates of Greenwich Park. Or there's like the big grand reception going on. Oh, fancy. He's still trying to get Cromwell to find a legal way out of the marriage. Despite King Henry's very, very vocal um disapproval and misgivings regarding Anne and the marriage, they got married on the 6th of January, 1540, at the Royal Palace of Placentia in Greenwich, London, by the Archbishop Thomas Cranmer. When Anne arrived in England, she basically conformed to Anglicanism. You know, this was very much expected because you're supposed to... Of royal princesses, generally, you're supposed to go there and adopt the name and culture of, of there. And Anne's w- wedding ring has God send me well to keep engraved on it, which is pretty nice. So yeah, they got married and all that was left was the king to do his duty. He had an heir, he needed a spare. But we have to remember that he is... He has the ulcerous leg... He's not as fit as he once was and he was suffering from bouts of impotence like this. Between Henry's bouts of impotence, his impatience and Anne's innocence, the marriage is never consummated. So, okay, they're in bed and he had run his hands over her body and he feels that her belly is soft and her breasts are loose. Loose. And so he starts complaining like, she can't be a virgin, she's no maid. So this whole thing is he's running his hands over her body and he is so repelled by it that he is incapable of doing anything because, of course, that's to blame and not him. So he's there complaining to Cromwell, going on about, she's not fair, and she's not a virgin. She has evil smells about her. Everybody smells, it's the Middle Ages. It's all I'm saying. Anyway, sure, and also, it's probably his ulcerous leg that's, smelling i'm just saying the only time henry has been near a woman with fuller breasts would probably be post childbirth the kind of woman he was with even in his letters to anne boleyn he mentions her little duckies and small breasts and so that's what he likes he likes a small breasted so yeah so on and so forth he's complaining that his bride was disposed to excite and provoke any lust in him and he could never be stirred to know her carnally and he leaves her as good a maid as he found her and honestly i think this really helped her and then on anne's side so anne is praising the king as a husband as a kind husband having a wee chat with the countess of rutland and she she tells her that in like, and this is like February 1540. And she basically tells her that when he comes to bed, he, you know, he kisses her and he takes her by the hand and he says, good night, sweetheart. In the morning, he kisses her and says, farewell, darling. Like, he's always very polite to her and kind. And, and Lady Rutland basically says, girl, you gotta do more than that. Otherwise, there isn't gonna be a Duke of York. Like, the Duke of York would be despair. I think a sexual relationship between... Anne of Cleves and Henry VIII would have put Hart in a situation where she would not have been looked upon favourably by Henry. But the fact that she was so innocent and, you know, I think that really, really helps solidify her as a non-threat. And the fact that because she was so innocent, 
she couldn't judge Henry and she never spoke ill of his sexual prowess because she had she had no knowledge, she had no consideration, she had nothing. And so she was perfect in the way that she couldn't put him down in the ways that mattered to him the most. So Henry and Anne, they put on this good front every time they go to like banquets and events. They are shown strongly side by side. But all the while in the background, Henry and his lawyers and so on and so forth, he has got them looking over the treaty and the marriage contract to try and find some kind of loophole for him to end the marriage. Even though Henry was not super keen on Anne's appearance, her quote-unquote queenly manner and dignity were always... Because she had been so... I don't want to say subservient, but because she had been so willing to learn about England and find the best way to assimilate an English culture and the best way to be, to serve the king. And she had this uh, dignity and queenly manner. Anne is writing to her family, saying that she's very happy with her husband. And yeah, they're going to tournaments and celebrations and all public events. And Anne, being raised the way she was in, in Germany, she didn't have the the courtly refinements you know, she's seen as a, as a bit of an embarrassment to the Tudor court, um, regardless of how eager to please she was. So yeah, she's 24 and he's 48, so he's twice her age. So Anne of Cleves is, a, is the same age as Mary Tudor, Henry's daughter. And the two of them actually strike up a friendship and it sort of shows how likeable Anne was because Mary's Mary's a staunch Catholic and she's not into um, reformers or anything like that. And Anne is also mad about Elizabeth. She loves Elizabeth. She said that to have Elizabeth as a daughter would have been a greater happiness than for her to be queen. Anne might have been eager to please and she might have been a caring and considerate wife. And she may not have the quote-unquote sophistication required for Tudor court, but she wasn't an idiot. She was perfectly aware that her lady-in-waiting Catherine Howard you know who is definitely more petite and slimmer and more aligned with the English style of beauty at the time, which wouldn't be hard because she was still a teenager, but that's neither here nor there. Initially, Anne does complain to the, you know, the ambassador for Duke of Cleves, but she kind of realises that she just has to be okay with the situation. She had to reconcile it because she was very aware of her situation and where she was. So by the 24th of June, 1540, Anne is ordered by the council to remove herself from court and fuck off to Richmond Palace. And like, while she's there, she finds out that her marriage to Henry had been called into question because this is what they ran with. Henry VIII was concerned about her previous engagement to the Duke of Lorraine and had therefore refrained from consummating the union. Anne is not happy, but she's a pragmatist. Like, she is very aware of the situation. Cromwell is in the Tower of London. He's being held. He's arrested for treason. And so he has to provide testimony uh, regarding the marriage to support the annulment. An ecclesiastical inquiry is commissioned. So, And a gaggle of counsellors, they arrive in Richmond in early July, you know, to chat to Anne. Anne is so shocked, you know, this whole whirlwind of events. Because remember, Henry does this. 
he's like very kind and considerate and he shows affection and he says he's on your side and then he turns around and being the fucking prick that he is stabs you in the fucking back and completely shocked faints and when she's recovered so once she gets up the first thing she does is she refuses to consent to the inquiry she's like what the fuck no fuck that for a game of soldiers no but then she has a little think when she's calmed down a little bit when she's reassessed the situation and thinks oh shit Catherine of Aragon banished and spurned Anne Boleyn beheaded like and both of them had dealt with an assassination of character had already been publicly rejected by the king she then agrees to the inquiry and the marriage is annulled on the 9th of July 1540. The annulment gets confirmed by Parliament three days later and Anne writes a letter of submission to Henry, offers herself up as a humble servant and refers to his majesty's clean and pure living with her. So basically her compliance is rewarded. Henry grants her a Richmond Palace, Bletchingley Manor and quite a, and quite a large annual income. She gets to keep all her royal jewels, plates, her goods and loads of stuff to furnish all her new properties. She gets the status becoming an honorary member of the king's family um, known as the king's sister and so she would be above all the women in the land except for his wife and his daughters. Later on he also gives her possession of Hever Castle which was Anne Boleyn's home. So Henry marries Catherine Howard on the 28th of July 1540 like less than a month later. And to show there's no hard feelings uh, and to be respectful, again, a very compliant servant of the king, Anne then dances with Catherine Howard after she marries Henry VIII. Like, that's... And by 1542, and as we know, that marriage didn't work out, she gets beheaded and there's pressure for the king to remarry again because he still doesn't have his spare. Anne's brother is now the Duke of... Ulick Clevesberg and he's like hey maybe you should remarry Anne eh like she's a good wife and Anne she really hoped that she would be reinstated as queen effectively she hadn't shown any signs of resentment after being publicly humiliated and rejected she was a regular visitor to court um Henry had also visited her a bunch of times and they even exchanged new year's gifts in 1542 he had no intention of ever getting back with her. That just, no. That was just a no situation for him. By placing her in the position of sister, it actually made it easier, I think, for him. But Anne was bitterly disappointed when he marries Catherine Parr, uh, stating that, you know, Catherine Parr wasn't even as pretty as Anne was. <laughs> we can see this in two ways. It was either all for show. She was living comfortably with all of the benefits of being a queen, but none of the disadvantages of being married to an aging, bloated and quite tyrannical king. But also, Anne was publicly rejected and she had no real role in England, but she couldn't exactly return to Cleves. Because if she did, she would return penniless, she would be dependent on her brother and she would be shamed and ridiculed for being an unworthy wife to equate to a king. And so because of Henry's initial statements of, you know, the first night of him saying that she wasn't a maid, um, rumour goes around that, you know, she had had a child and this like, Henry has this investigated, but there is like zero evidence this ever happened. Like, 
No. And she doesn't really have freedom. I mean, one, it's the middle fucking ages. No woman has freedom. Like, her servants are expected to report on her movements. The letters she writes to her family are monitored, you know? Anne's mother raised her to be frugal, but she was terrible with money. She was, uh, she was often in debt. So, <laughs> when Henry dies in 1547 and nine-year-old Edward takes the throne, Anne's status quickly declines. The King's Council, they kind of see her as a non-person and a drain on the resources, and they just take back two of her manners that Henry had given her. So, so she's a heaver and she's like, you know what, fuck it, let's love life the best I can. And she turns her house at Hever into this kind of like a miniature court. She receives esteemed guests from across the kingdom, including Princess Elizabeth. And through all of these guests, she keeps up with what's going on at court and gets invitations to visit court herself. So when Edward dies and Mary I comes to the throne, Elizabeth and Anne get a place of honour at Mary's coronation. And in the procession to Westminster Abbey, Anne and Elizabeth walk together directly behind the new queen. So because Anne and Elizabeth are both sort of, because they're both Anglican reformists, um, there's a rumour spreading around that, you know, they're conspiring against Queen Mary and her Catholic regime. Mary was like, no, Anne is doing no such thing. So Anne, in typical fashion, she just, um... She leaves court pretty soon after Mary gets the throne and spends most of her time out by, like, Chelsea or Hever. Um, and she's gonna, you know, just live her life quietly. When Anne's health starts to fail and she's just out living her life out by, um, and she starts getting ill. And when and as this happens, Mary lets her stay in Chelsea Old Manor. So Anne starts dictating her last will and testament. So she mentions her brother, her sister, her sister-in-law, Princess Elizabeth, the Duchess of Suffolk and the Countess of Arundel. So in her will, it names nearly all her servants individually. She left keepsakes to both of her stepdaughters and Catherine, the Dowager Duchess of Suffolk, which was a really brave move because Catherine had actually gone into exile um, during Mary's reign. But the reason Anne had left something for her was because Catherine was one of the first people to welcome her when she got to England. When it came to her servants, Anne had bequested that Mary and Elizabeth employ her servants in their households so they had somewhere to work. And all of her servants, they never had anything bad to say about her. They, it was, she was generally loved. And on the 16th of July, 1557, at the age of 41, Anne of Cleves passed away and she is buried in Westminster Abbey on the 3rd of August 1557. It really shows you how sensible Anne of Cleves must have been. I mean granted she outlived all of the other of Henry's wives and probably had a better ending than uh, most of them. She managed to stay in everybody's like good graces like, like so she had seen she had been publicly rejected by the king. She had properties taken off of her by Edward VI. She survived Mary taking the throne and instigating a Catholic regime. And apart from the initial statements regarding her looks and her beauty, apart from that small pocket of insults, nobody really had a bad thing to say about her. She was well-liked. So what did we learn today? Sometime pragmatism is more important than principle. If you want to survive, what did we learn today? 
Sometimes pragmatism is more important than principle if you want to survive. I'm not sure I could take such a public rejection as well as Anne did. You are not to blame for an old dude's impotence. Mail order brides are people too. That's it. No, fuck that. You know what? That's what it is. I'm sorry, but that's... Oh my goodness. I... Sorry, but I just like realised that those political marriages, when they get a princess from another like region or country or whatever to come over and marry a king or prince or whatever the hell it was at the time, like that's a mail order bride, ye olde style. Like what the fuck? Okay, yeah. If if you like today's story, uh, feel free to go on to uh, I Apple Apple Podcasts and rate and review five stars. You don't have to say anything about the podcast. You can say round and round the rugged rocks, the ragged rascal ran. That's our story of Anne of Cleves. But anyway, I am going to go. So until next time, adios, au revoir, au revoir, zen, my friends. Hello everyone, it's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be.